0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm honored to be joined by Gavin Van Horn, co-editor, along with Robin Welkimmer and John Hausdorfer of Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations, published in 2021 by the Center for Humans and Nature. Gavin is the creative director and executive editor of the Center for Humans and Nature. Gavin Van Horn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brady. All right. Um, So to start, uh, if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, your background, um, the work of the uh, Center for Humans and Nature, um, and how you became interested in this topic.
2: Sure thing. So... um... Well, my background intersects with yours in a way, Brady. Um, We were both in the Religion and Nature program at the University of Florida, me much longer ago than you, Um, (laughs) but uh, I uh, have been working for the Center for Humans and Nature for a little over 11 years now, and it is an organization that's based in the Chicagoland area, and it has a focus on... The environmental humanities, environmental ethics, and really about asking the big questions of what it means to relate and relate well to the more-than-human world. So um, it's really diving into these these ethical uh, questions that people may have about our relationship to the natural world, and it tries to create a platform that is a you know a circle of conversation between experts and activists and artists, poets and writers. And so it's very interdisciplinary, even transdisciplinary by nature. And um, unlike academic institutions, it also really tries to be accessible. Um, I often tell the people that I uh, work with when I have my editorial hat on, um, people that contribute to our books, one of my first things to offer them is tell a good story. Um, Because what we're trying to invite really from anybody that comes across our work is we're trying to engage their empathic imaginations to see themselves in the stories of others. And that doesn't just include human others, that includes our many, many non-human other kind that we share this planet with. Uh, was there another part of the question that I didn't address?
1: Yeah, just, um, so we're talking about kinship. Um, we are talking about a five volume uh, <laughs> series on kinship. So uh, how did you become interested in this broad topic of kinship?
2: So I think for me, it began with um, an event. i Actually, I'll go back a, a tiny bit further than that, um, because again, it connects a little bit to your story in that I first read a scholar named Graham Harvey, who wrote a book called Animism, uh, in which he talks about the various animisms uh, in the world, um, not just as a past artifact as or as a something that uh, is often framed in the religious context as a sort of Uh, something that's been sort of supplanted by monotheism or polytheism you know animism is kind of the you know in, in old scholarship and late 19th century scholar maybe early 20th century as well there was a kind of idea that there was a progression beyond animism that animism was tied to indigenous cultures and they had all kinds of false beliefs and it worked with it worked for them at the time but we've since moved beyond that i'm of course generalizing a little bit here but harvey's efforts were to reclaim that term um and that practice that way of life as something that was not uh not something that was sort of uh uh, you know archaic or or quote unquote primitive but actually uh, a very viable way of interacting and engaging with the world um not only for indigenous persons, but for also in many, many modern movements. And one of the terms that he uses in his book, one of the things that he emphasizes that is characteristic of an animistic relationship to the world is the idea that there are other than human persons in this world. So the concept or the category of personhood is much more expansive than simply being confined to human beings or to homo sapiens. So persons is the larger umbrella that includes anything that we perceive as having agency, um, perhaps other than human intelligence, um, that has a will of its own, a wildness of its own, an intention uh, uh, that sometimes intersects with our interests as human beings, other times doesn't, but nonetheless needs to be honored and, and, uh, and engaged with. As though the world is full of subjectivities and is not just a collection of objects. And so I think that larger framing of personhood really struck home with me, really um, something I identified with personally, um, and also something that kind of tweaked the lens with which I was uh, viewing uh, the way that other people uh, interacted with the world. So that concept of personhood then became. uh, very powerful politically and legally when um, certain non-human entities began to receive legal rights as persons. Um, and I'm thinking in particular here of something that happened quite recently, and that's in 2017, the Whanganui River in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, was granted the rights of uh, personhood uh, that was Legally designated a a living entity to which um, the people of New Zealand and the Maori people that were the stewards of that watershed had uh, particular responsibilities to to make sure that it wasn't um, not only to make sure that it wasn't defiled, uh, that it wasn't polluted, uh, that it wasn't mistreated, but that it was um, honored and lived with in in terms of uh, a reciprocity, you know, uh, an entwining of cultural and ecological um, lifeways, so that a river could be a person. Went on. Uh, that wasn't the first time that that had happened, but it was a one that caught a lot of headlines and and, and intersected with a lot of thoughts that I'd been having about um, my work at the Center for Humans and Nature and what the next project was that I wanted to take on. So originally the kinship project started out as thinking about, let's do a project on non-human persons or expanding that concept of personhood. But still, uh, I think in the end, we felt maybe that's a little less accessible and maybe a broader way to talk about this is just to talk about it as kinship, the ways that we are related, um, to non-human persons falls under that, uh, that rubric of of kinship and it gives us a lot of latitude um to talk about these relationships that we share with other than human persons um on all different scales so it seemed like an exciting way to um to not just limit ourselves to say legal um cases or you know to particular examples um but to talk more broadly about the ways that that we we live in various kinships uh, in this world. And to really emphasize um, the idea that humans are, in the practice, that humans are not somehow divided from the natural world apart from, that we are not categorically uh, different. I think you'll know the kind of famous quote from Darwin that we are maybe different in degree, but not in kind um, as a species. In other words, there's continuity uh, between us psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, perhaps even um, certainly um, cognitively and um, between our own species and other species. And moreover, that it's not limited to just species. There are people in this, uh, in our book who talk about relationships to the moon um, as a person, relationship to mountains as people, relationship to... Uh, entire uh, bioregions. So it really can kind of blow the lid off of uh, a kind of of human chauvinism or uh, human exclusivity, which I think most of us uh, nowadays, um, not all of us, but a lot of us inherit as kind of fundamental to let's just call it a Western uh, industrialist worldview.
1: Right. And I think, as I heard you say in a another interview, um, if the U.S. Supreme Court can grant uh, corporations personhood, why not a
2: river? <laughs> well, the funny thing about that, of course, I think, um, is that, and not funny, really, because, you know, the impacts of it can be devastating. Um, but that idea that that would somehow be acceptable, but, that you would leave a river off the table, you know, you know, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) I don't know how you can put a river on the table, but you know what I mean? Um, in terms of personhood, it really shows where, uh, the social values lie um, and what our, uh, legal system is built to support. Um, that is, uh, you know, capital or those things that can be defined with a monetary, label um, are accorded a kind of value that is almost sacred, you know, that if we're talking about something being defined as a person, and having the rights of a person. Um, you know, I think that's a, a reflection of, of where we are, and how, um, if something can't be economically uh, captured, then it somehow is of uh, off the radar, or maybe just of lesser worth. So, I think there is something significant about about that fact.
1: Sure, and and I don't mean to uh, you know equate uh, <laughs> ecological processes or the natural world with a corporation. Um, however, uh, the Supreme Court may have unintentionally given uh, folks a tool to assert personhood for. Uh, non-human entities I guess
2: <laughs> yeah and I mean we're still working all that out and will be for some time because um, you know of course uh, in our in our Western legal system you know land is, is viewed as a as either private pop- property public good but in some way or another somebody uh, owns it And whether that ownership uh, includes uh, a relationship that uh, cares for it is a whole other question. Um, Most of the time, ownership simply means you can, let's call it extractivism, you can take whatever you want um, because you've bought title to that place your um your ethical responsibility to it is then only constrained by other laws you know um say you know the protection of wild and scenic rivers act or the you know or something else but this is you know it's constantly there's this catching up between somebody you know uh, a uh, a company let's say that's you know dumping uh waste product into a river you know um the ability to do that usually comes first the damage is done and the protection only comes later and again to circle back to where what we were talking about before i think it's reflective of that idea that the earth uh lands waters airs are simply kind of common area into which you can you you don't have to have a relationship to it unless it's you know it's just one of a kind of cast-off relationship, you know, consequences be damned. Um, But there isn't an inherent uh, reciprocity or kinship uh, recognition there. So I think that's really the the kinds of alternative stories that we're trying to hold up here, is that while that might be common, while that might be familiar to us, these books, this series of books show that there are Many, many alternative narratives that might have been suppressed, that might have been actively um, discarded or, or tamped down, um, but they're out there. These stories are there, these different ways of being, these different ways of, of being kin and honoring the other, um, the other living persons that we share this world with.
1: All right. Um, so before we go any further, we should probably define a couple of key terms. Um, so we've used kinship a fair amount, uh, a term we haven't yet used, kinning. Um, so maybe you could define those two and then describe uh, perhaps an experience um, you've had where that you would describe as kinning.
2: Hmm. So... First, with, uh, with kinship, I mean, it, it is what it sounds like, that we are related. We are relatives um, as as earthlings with other earthlings. Um, and I think that maybe the common way of thinking about kinship, just this sort of... Um, let's call it conventional or familiar way um, that probably most people think of kinship is they usually just think of their immediate families or maybe their extended families. Like, Oh, my second cousin is I'm kin. You know, what we're saying is that, no, um, it's not just a matter of uh, immediate genetic relations that kinship is um, I've mentioned the word more than a few times. I'm sure I will uh, more than a few more. And, um you know the subtitle of the book is belonging in a world of relations right so um we're talking about a kinship that it can be based on you know uh, sort of genetic you know relations for instance you know this you know we know that we shared 99 plus percent of our dna with um chimpanzees, for instance, or as my son reminded me the other day, we share 70% of our genetics with a banana. Um, so <laughs> um, there is a genetic component, but that's so limiting, um, the, that kind of biological DNA code. We want to say that relations are built on relating, right? So what is the quality of our relationships with uh, other species and, other, and, and the landscapes that we're a part of? So that leads me right into, I think, the idea of kinning, which is uh, a verb. You know, we're talking about we are kinning with the world around us. That's just a way of emphasizing that this is a practice. This is something that, um, that, that we do through various ways that we build our relationships over time. And, you know, anyone will know the so- a sort of analog, you know, when we think about our most intimate relationships, like if we're in a long term partnership or or marriage, you know, things are much different 20, 25, 30 years down the line than they are when we first start, you know, uh, uh, first see somebody from across a room. Right. And <laughs> so these relationships are built over time and um, and. That means time spent um, with, intentionally with with others, and and there are all different kinds of practices. In fact, volume five of the series is entitled "Practice" um, because we wanted to offer up some of the ways that various people find that they can. Uh, that, these practices of connection that they participate in and and the ways that we can um, begin to sort of break through that idea that the world around us is just a scenery or a um, kind of a stage set for human action, you know, a play of some kind that we're just walking through. And then, you know, no, these are uh, living energies, living entities that uh, living subjectivities that we are in the midst of. So how can we become better kin? I think it's a really strong question that runs throughout the series.
1: I would agree. I, th- I think that is, that is one of the core questions. Um, so as, as you mentioned, as I've mentioned, this is a five volume series. This is a very ambitious work. Um, you've divided the volumes into planet, place, partners, persons, and practice. Obviously, uh, a lot of P words, and alliteration, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but maybe you could explain the significance of these categories. Like, why did you choose them? Were there alternatives you considered? Um, I, I assume these were pretty intentional choices.
2: Yeah, they were. And it emerged kind of organically. I mean, the idea that we connect as can at different scales is there to begin with. And what I mean by scales, I mean, you know, from the macro to the micro, right? So, from the cosmic, you know, in the sense that, uh, you know, as, as Joni Mitchell said, we are stardust, right? Um, uh, or Carl Sagan probably said it first. I don't know if he did actually. Maybe he did.
1: We um, can give them both credit. You know, we can both give them worthy both credit. Of credit for a variety yeah, of no, reasons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
2: <laughs> one in a more poetic way, uh, you know, but. Um, but, you know, this idea that we are of the same elements, you know, that we, we're of the same stuff, you know, let's start there. Like this, you know, the, the, the notion that we're so divided or we're so different as human beings um, uh, from other forms of life, you know. Um, so let's start with a macro. Let's look at the ways that, you know, we're influenced by, that we're, you know, at least on this planet, we we share a sun we share an atmosphere we share you know um a night sky um what are the ways in which you know on that sort of scale we can we can consider ourselves ken and then from there from the macro we sort of went step down a level for each volume you know we have place and that's the bioregions the watersheds that that we find ourselves a part of um very important um to uh to giving uh to informing us about um what we're related to and how um how our regions affect us and then we you know we we went down a scale or down a step into partners this these interspecies relationships these these relationships that that we have with the other of our fellow earthlings. Um, and then from there to persons, really getting into kind of the, um, both the human psychology of, but also, you know, acknowledging the particularity. Like we're not equally kin with all other creatures. There are some creatures that we have very special and particular relationships with. And that goes for whole cultures who, you know, uh, if you think about totem species or you think about, cultural touchstones uh, species that are in the mythology or the origin stories the cosmologies um, of, of indigenous folks or non-indigenous folks for that matter um, but also on a personal level like we might develop a relationship with a particular species, even an individual in a particular species, say a crow that comes to visit our you know, balcony um, and those, that's an important scale to consider because in some ways, those are the, those are in some ways the least abstract, you know, the, uh, and potentially the most meaningful and inform how we view other species, um, outside of that individual. And then the practice volume is really a way to, to bring it down. If we, you know, started with the cosmic, then to say, you know, well, what happens with our feet and our hands, you know, where do we where does our skin meet the earth's skin? Um, And how do we cultivate these relationships more intentionally? Um, So, but you asked like, did these kind of, were these there from the beginning and they weren't there from the beginning because at the beginning, we just thought we were going to do one volume on kinship. We just thought, you know, we'll get together, you know, say 20 or so contributors, maybe a couple more. And, We'll do this volume on kinship, and uh, over time, uh, you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer and John Hausdorfer as my co-editors, they brought people into the mix. I continue to reach out to people. The people I reached out to put me in touch with other people. You know, a lot of our poetry came from that kind of organic process where somebody just said, you know, who you should really get in touch with is so and so, and over time we developed this body of material that then. Uh, you know I hate to make it sound like it just all just completely like you know all the jigsaw pieces locked into place but there was really a sense of like well this essay goes here this poem goes here this you know and then they all flow um, into one another and they really divided themselves out fairly equally um, between these different uh, categories you know planet place partners persons practice so I'm um, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm really grateful for the way that it it came out like that, and then we thought, well, we already have this material, so let's bundle it together and put it out there in in that form.
1: Yes, well, uh, quite a few contributors, um, as you said, uh, poets, scientists, um, scholars of all backgrounds. Um, novelist Richard Powers of course uh, worth mentioning that you have him but also uh, our current poet laureate Joy Harjo (laughs) so yeah quite a few people who I think uh, are entry points for lots of different uh, kinds of readers maybe folks who might not be as familiar with uh, some of the academic literature and that's just fine because the poetry stands out uh, as much as anything Um, so so well done in presenting uh, I think many different takes on kinship um you mentioned uh Robin Walkimmer, obviously one of your co-editors. Um so central to this book um is this notion of key um uh, that she brings up in her essay. I think you bring it up in your intro essay. Um and also uh, Enrique Salmon's notion of concentric kin- uh, ecology. Um mm-hmm. could you just describe um those two concepts, those two notions? Um, and why they were important sort of
2: connective threads within, I think, all five volumes? Yeah, absolutely. So Robin wrote a piece uh, that appeared in Orion magazine, but I think it also, I don't know if it originally appeared in Braiding Sweetgrass or if it was the other way around, but it's um, a chapter called The Grammar of Animacy. And in that, she talks about how in her native Potawatomi language, um, there are a lot of things that in English are nouns, but in, in, uh, Anishinaabe, uh, are verbs. And so I can't think of, I, I'm going to get this example wrong, but, you know, say like we look out and we see, uh, you know, a, a bay, a body of water and we call it a bay. We, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, a noun. It's just a body. There's another noun of water, another noun. Um, and she said, "Well, no. And in, in my language, that would be... and I, I'm making this up. You'll have to go back and read the essay for yourself. But it's something like, you know, the wind whips through uh, the water, uh, you know, or something like that. It has a much more active presence. Uh, so it's not a noun; it's a verb. It's it's moving. It's it's there's uh, oftentimes intentionality." Um, buried in the in the, the the words and the terms the phrases that are used um another good sort of touchstone for this would be keith basso's work right wisdom sits in places um so this is not uncommon uh to indigenous languages and so robin proposes that one of the problems with the noun heavy uh english language is its use of pronouns that we can we often you know i won't put you on the spot you know um but but say you see a bird flying through the sky you might uh turn to a friend and say wow look at that bird isn't that isn't that cool um uh what is it oh well i think it's a you know red-tailed hawk you know i from here that's what it seems like oh is that what it is Well, each time you're calling it an it right uh and it is uh our pronoun in the english language that you know usually describes an object and it's very very common for not just plants or you know or landscapes or whatever but you know for other uh non-human animals uh to be called it you know um in fact i probably think that that that's uh I'm assuming that that's still, you know, the the convention in in almost all scientific work, right? Um, I know from studying Mexican gray wolves that you know every wolf has a number that's reintroduced, you know, to uh, keep track of them. You know, so they're M five sixty four, you know, um, and they're called it. And to give them to call them he or she, even though it would be anatomically correct is sort of frowned upon because the idea is that, well, that makes them somehow um, that would be either a anthropomorphizing, which is a no, no, um, or, you know, that um, it makes it harder to do the job of managing them and probably, you know, and, and, and uh, managing them up to the point of, of killing them if, you know, if necessary. So if you call something an it, well, it, that, that's that much easier. So Robin, to get back to her, you know, uh, case for key, which is KI, there's an Anishinaabe word that she was taught that essentially means earth being, and it ends with that key. So key, KI, is an abbreviation that sort of means a, a living being or an earth being. And she proposes instead of it, let's use key oh, key is flying through the sky. If we don't know what it is, or if we don't know what its gender is, let's say key, that's an earth being. And I think that the importance of that is that not everybody has to use key or make that transition or shift, but uh, just to be aware of the way that we objectify the world and how much easier it is once we've objectified the world to then abuse the world, essentially, to do what we want with it, to not ask permission not say please and thank you <laughs> to bring it back to sort of childhood lessons of of just uh, politeness and respect right when we're engaging with other uh creatures other entities that are that have pronouns that we recognize uh, as um as subjective that is uh, he or she uh they um then we're more likely to treat those other creatures with some measure of respect so that's robin's case that she's making is that it's inherent to these language indigenous languages including her own that that other beings are are alive and have agency and intentionality um and that really, that one very simple thing, if you think about it, can really uh, revolutionize one's perspective. The other thing you asked about was concentric ecology, which is another indigenous scholar, a uh, fellow named Enrique Samon So Enrique is an ethnobotanist, and his people are the uh, Tarumara Indians in Northern Mexico. And he periodically goes down there and um, meets with uh, different folks and also does some research. And he was really trying to capture what he saw on the ground there about what happens for his and what are the relationships between his people and a particular really important plants like corn, uh, which is essential to the culture and is considered a mother. kin, right, (laughs) mother, Um, these relationships are not confined, you know, to between human beings. Um, And so he came up with this term, concentric ecology, to describe the ways in which um, people, human beings can become keystone species in their landscapes, meaning that their actions, their work with the plants uh and the animals of that landscape can actually create and facilitate more uh, biodiversity it can create and facilitate mutual flourishing between people and their place and this is um this is been shown in many, many different places. But this, capturing this by saying it's a concentric ecology is a way of saying that that these relations, the way that people feel themselves to be relatives to these plants and animals, and the way that um, in their mythologies, their cosmologies, their cultures, their stories, that these uh, are recognized and known as relatives and they're related and in Enrique's case, they're related sometimes to even specific points of the human developmental and, and growth, you know, say childhood, puberty, uh, adulthood, old age, you know, there are different plants that correspond to these times. So it's very embedded and entwined with the culture. So this idea of a concentric ecology is that humans can be um beneficial presences on their landscapes because they are tied in to acknowledge their uh, their relationships, uh, their deep relationships to these uh, places. So that's, that's the idea of concentric ecology. And that was sort of also a pillar of this series because broadly speaking, um, I think that the work that we try to bring together um, is that we we hear a lot every day, and in part this is just the 24-7 news cycle, You know, we hear a lot about the damage that human beings are doing. And without ignoring that capacity, that destructive capacity that we have, which is heightened in scale by the technologies available to us and the sort of nation states that we live within, that there are, many other stories about the ways in which people relate to their landscapes in this sort of concentric way and that these are uh these are situations in which human beings are actually um they benefit the places that they're a part they make them they uh, make them more beautiful they make them ecologically speaking uh healthier um and uh, more resilient and so that uh, the idea then is that that we um, if we are adapted to our places and if we are relating well to our more than human kin, then we can actually create flourishing where we are that we aren't simply defiling uh, of what we touch Um, In fact, for most of human history, I would venture that that has not been the case. And so it's kind of finding our way uh, back into these practices and into these uh, stories. And I think that a key component of that is this idea of kinning and this this idea of seeing ourselves um, as kin.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: So, uh, a related question. (laughs) Uh, So, we are speaking, I guess it's November 12th, 2021. Um, We are on the back end of another spike in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, The COVID-19 pandemic makes some appearances in these volumes. Uh, so I, I guess my question is in a, hopefully at some point we're in a post COVID-19 world, um, at least in the way that we've been experiencing it, it may linger. Um, but like, how, how can we encourage if, you know, assuming we want to encourage kinning, like how can we encourage kinning, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in, in our relationships um, with the natural world or other species, um, are, there, are there sort of new possibilities um, that you or any you know, particular contributor um, sort of identified or has identified since the publication um, for how we can sort of embrace this idea of kinning, um, especially at this sort of time of global
2: transition? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, an article that was sent to me the other day by Braun, in fact um it was about singapore um and i don't know a ton about singapore but i know that they've as an urban area they've tried to uh incorporate uh green buildings green walls um you know restore their um, their parks and green spaces um really kind of weave into the fabric of the you know sort of the the call it the gray infrastructure you know weave the blue and the green uh in as well and i think it's uh i have to double check on this or or you might um double check i want to say it's otters um that river otters that are have taken a a little bit of advantage of this um that their numbers were down for a while and now they're rebounding and rebounding to such a degree that, you know, people are following their different family groups on uh, Facebook like they would the Lannisters uh, on Game of Thrones, you know, or, you know, like the different, <laughs> the soap opera of Otter Life. Um, I guess I'm reminded of that um, because. Uh, and in, in some cases, uh, well, I think in, 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 so many cases really, uh, you know, I mean, one of the incredible things about COVID, I don't know what I would have done if it would have been, you can't go outside, <laughs> but, um, and in fact, you know, as long as you were socially distanced, you know, that was the sort of safe place to be, um, to breathe, as long as you had the elbow room to do so. Um, And you're right that, you know, it's a, it's a shock to uh, sort of business as usual. Um, I think, you know, within that, as anytime there is that kind of shock, it's a, it's also, there's an opportunity to sort of take stock and, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, turned to, the sort of microwaves that they could connect to others, you know, whether that be gardening on their balcony or you know, taking walks in their uh, local parks. Um, you know, and just because there was uh, less socializing, uh, at least offline uh, in, in groups and gatherings, and there were still plenty of opportunities to um, uh, be out and about and connect. So I don't know. I don't. My experience was it didn't diminish the opportunity for connection; just put the emphasis in different places. Um, yeah, I guess that's where I'll leave it. Unless, unless you have a follow up on that.
1: Uh, no, I, I, have the, um, I guess the piece that you mentioned on Singapore. I, I think I read a maybe related or slightly different piece um, where I, I think certain uh, sort of sea animals were. Um, so abundant in the river Thames um, in, you know, in London, uh, the stretch that hits London. So they like Londoners were seeing, um, you know, animals they haven't seen since before the river was so polluted that really uh, no life uh, could be sustained for stretches of time. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's connected, but that's, that's what that reference made me think of. Um, there was like a picture that looked like a seal on the like banks of the Thames. It probably wasn't a seal <laughs> Um given <laughs> uh g- given the location. But maybe it was. I don't know. Uh,
2: maybe well, it was. I know that there was r- a
1: couple <laughs> <laughs> of
2: I mean, I know that early on there was uh there was a little there was some there's a mixed bag of that where like some of them were like doctored images and some of them were you know, but uh you know, if you look beyond the kind of fake, you know, the fake out there is this desire I think that's that that expresses that We'd like to connect, you know, and and we'd like these um, these fellow creatures to to be released from all the the pressures that they've um, that they've felt as a result of of human presence, and uh, you know. But as somebody who has, uh, you know, I mean, I, I devoted a book to urban life and interaction with other species in urban areas. Oftentimes, you know what might be in our mind something that is urban areas have long been characterized as as the kind of a kind of anti-nature and i think that narrative is changing but there are plenty of examples uh of where you do not you don't have to go far um to experience wildness in an urban area um and so oftentimes it's more a matter of our own perception than it is of the actual, <clears throat> the actual places that we live in um, and to, uh, you know, that we are surrounded by and, and infused with, you know, the natural world. I mean, some, I guess there's overlap here in, in a certain sense because we are as connected as our very next uh, breath, which is sort of the, uh kind of an original source of the model of reciprocity right we breathe in you know what the plants the trees are offering and we breathe out and share our breath with them so you know from the dandelion growing up through the crack in the pavement to the backyard garden to the local park to the lakeshore or the seashore or the you know the The pond, or the vacant lot, or the you know the peregrine falcons re-inhabiting skyscrapers in Chicago, you know, as nesting sites. You know, oftentimes it's more a matter of of us, I think, opening our eyes to those experiences, and uh, it's kind of uh, there's sort of a positive feedback loop, and that the more we open ourselves, the the more we end up seeing, and the more we end up seeing, the more we open ourselves. So.
1: Sure. Um, so you uh, <laughs> uh, have anticipated uh, my next question. Um, I, I've previously listened to a New Books interview of yours uh, with your co-editor uh, John Hausdorfer, on your book on wildness. Um, so, like I, clearly, there's some connections that you've already highlighted between this book on kinship and your previous book on wildness. But I don't know if there's anything else uh, you want to say about it. It's it's not lost on me that. Um, you know, this, this argument that I think you are sort of a part of um, is connected back to this, you know, William Cronin essay, I would argue, at least, on um, The Trouble with Wilderness. And, and I think, you know, that, that essay has been used in some unanticipated ways. But I think you are part of sort of the, the pushback with Cronin that wildness is all around us. Wilderness, as like legally defined, may not be, but like wilderness in sort of a broader sense um, absolutely is, if we care to look at it. If we, you know, don't sort of
2: pave over it, so
1: any connections between kinship and wildness you would like to highlight that you haven't already?
2: Yeah, just that. Um, well, sort of uh, along the lines of, of what you uh, what we were talking about earlier, though, in a slightly different contest context. You know, I'm going to go back to that phrase: a difference of degree and not of kind. Um, in other words a difference in quantity or depth of experience but not necessarily in quality of experience in that um, when we did the book wildness we said you know um, that wildness is on a continuum uh, from the most densely populated areas to those areas that as you say are zoned as wilderness areas that are very um, sparsely populated if at all by human beings um, depending on sort of their legal designation and what's allowed to happen there and so i think the tendency is to think oh well you know i want to have a quote-unquote nature experience so i better get my car and drive outside of the city limits uh, preferably into one of these sort of monumental um you know jewels of the national park system like a glacier national park or a yellowstone national park and that's where i can have a true nature experience and we wanted to say well that's part of the continuum that's that's you know part of and there are different experiences to be had there you know when you're overwhelmed by a you know a thousand foot cliff face you know with a waterfall pouring off of it into you know a beautiful you know uh, lake below or something um as opposed to you know when you're walking down uh, city uh, city alleyway um but the city alleyway is also part of the continuum and that there is wildness all around if we define wildness as a process a Sort of uh, uh, the lands, uh, the will uh, that's connected to it, etym- etym- etymologically speaking, that wildness you know is about will, will dior, um, and that is a process that's a part of us, like literally a part of us, like our gut microbiomes are wild universes um, <laughs> that are are you know are now being studied um you know and many connections being made between gut health and and all the microbes that live within us and um and our brain health our psychological health um and so it kind of circles back to the idea that we divided these kinship volumes by scale you know from the cosmic you know on down through various scales um and in the same way there's a uh maybe a parallel there with the idea that wildness as a as a quality as a as a as a part of the land's will crosses whatever landscape we're in and so it's a matter more of attuning ourselves to those instances of wildness and if we can encouraging them i'll give you an example of where i something i talk about which is um in the midwest, you know, there's like 0.01% of the prairie that was originally, you know, there the tall grass prairie. And um there's a lot of uh, you know, I mean Illinois itself is is the motto is the prairie state, which is kind of embarrassing now given how little prairie there is uh left. But at the same time there are these uh restoration projects where People are um, reseeding, you know, the prairie. They're reclaiming lands or building on what remnant prairie is left to expand that, um, growing the seeds to be cultivated again into those areas, or sometimes just allowing the land to again uh, be what it be what it was. Uh, you know, sort of related to what we were talking about before. Once the pressures of pavement and, um, and and other you know anthropogenic uh, sources are re- removed. What does the land want to be? What does it want to do? And how do we align ourselves with that that will? How do we listen deeply to that? How do we um, become conversation partners rather than monologists <laughs> when we're interacting with the land? And so it doesn't mean always having the answers, but it means going in and, and listening as though there is agency there that needs to be heard. And that is, that is wildness. That's tuning into wildness. What does this place want to be, given the chance? Um, so that's you know something that we certainly wanted to lift out in that book, that wildness was about depth and place, but it was also across a continuum. And that we didn't have to, um, that part of thinking of nature as always out there somewhere else, always um, kind of in these monumental landscapes actually can inhibit the way that uh, we think of humans as uh, able to be part of their places.
1: Yeah, I th- as as you were talking, it occurred to me. There's, there's I think another connection that you touched on, sort of the the nouning versus verbing, right? Like wilderness is is a noun. It suggests that there's this sort of static place that we call the wilderness that we've designated these areas within this country, at least. But wildness or wilding or rewilding or you know reclaiming prairie land, right? That's an active process that is something that I think acknowledges that as much as humans may want sort of a steady state um that one we don't have that control and two that's just that's not the case um so yeah i i I think your your nouning verbing conversation uh in these volumes i think is is another connection that uh yeah didn't occur to me while reading but well while talking with you uh that seems like a strong connection (laughs) um so we're coming close to the end. I recognize your time is is important, and you have other things to do with your day. But um, I have, uh, I guess, two two more questions. Um, so, and this is more of a logistical one. Um, there are a lot of people who wrote for these volumes, right? It started as one volume. It ended as five. Um, I think by my count, it's somewhere around 800, 850 pages. I think you sent me a document that said this is some bananas amount of words. Um, so so how did you put this project together with uh, Robin Wall Kimber, with John Hausdorfer? Um, how did you approach your contributors? And like, what was your ask of them? right? Was it simply, hey, can you write something about kinship? Or was there something more specific that I think led to this, what I would say is like a creative burst um, of this, you know, collective mosaic that I I think really works together and the pieces work really well separately?
2: So I'm glad you asked that. It's one of the nice things um, about working for an organization like the Center for Humans and Nature is that we're able, at least in pre-COVID times, we were able to get people together, um, for meetings on occasion, uh, when we were beginning a project like the kinship project. And so it started out fairly modestly. You know, I think we had 15 to 20 people that we, that were able to come and meet as a group for a couple of days. And in part that was just to share ideas, um, you know, there's a little bit of sharing kind of methods, you know, what do we think would be the best format to get this out into the world? You know, um, you might know that we also have a, a radio show associated with the kinship books. Uh, we also have an online art gallery that has just been released um, in the past few months. Um, so it's kind of a multidimensional project. But it started with a, a kind of core group of people and then, you know, based on, what they suggested, who they suggested, what topics they were keenest to to want to focus on, uh, we moved from there. And um, yeah, there are uh, one of the things I'm really proud of of these books is the way that we were um, able to get an international group of contributors, um, a few, a couple of people from India, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, the UK um, and just a wide, uh, diversity of people. So, um, topically, you know, sometimes we knew kind of what hole we wanted to fill, but other times it was more a matter of, we knew what person we wanted and knew that they would tell an interesting story no matter what they were writing about. And you asked about, you know, what kind of framing did we give folks? And so the easiest thing to do is just look on the back cover of each volume because each of the volumes has a framing question on the back and essentially That's what we would ask uh, our contributors So just to give you an example I happen to have the volume three partners uh, in my hands and the framing question was how do cultural traditions narratives and mythologies shape the ways in which we relate to other beings as kin or not? How do these relations between and among different species foster a sense of responsibility and belonging. So by framing it as a question, you know, our contributors could mull that over, see where that intersected with their own work, um, their own experiences. And then as editors, you know, we would, um, sometimes work with people to, uh, think about what might be the most relevant or the most exciting, uh, piece, that topic that they wanted to write about. But other times, you know, we left it in the hands of contributors to write their story. And then, um, we'd see it on the other side and, you know, figure out if it did fit in the volume we thought they were going to fit in, or if we should shuffle things around a little bit, you know, all that kind of, kind of fun stuff. Um, but overall just super, super pleased with the, the breadth and the range of, of creativity and, and, the different ways that people approach this the same, you know, word and topic uh, from so many different angles. And hopefully that gives the readers of these volumes a way to see where that intersects with their own life or what that shows them that they hadn't even thought about before.
1: Great. Right, thank you. Um, as I've said on previous podcasts, uh, often we talk about Books, but we don't actually hear language from the books that we've uh, discussed. (laughs) Um, So uh, I've I've asked you if you would uh, to read, I guess, the opening paragraph and the last two paragraphs of your introductory essay um, of Volume One. I think it sort of sets the table for what follows. Uh, So
2: thank you. Okay, sure thing, Brady. All right. So this introduction is called what we've been talking about, kinning, (laughs) introducing the kinship series. The lines hung lightly suspended in midair, twinkling illuminated from within, then vanished. I inclined my head. The lines reappeared, seeming to materialize out of emptiness. These weren't merely lines. They were radial strands, precisely strung from a central axis, intricately woven. The glow from a nearby streetlamp caught within them, revealing a sacred geometry. I leaned closer. With a slight tilt of my face, altering the angle between my eyes and the spider's evening project, the lines alternately disappeared or disclosed themselves. Their creator deftly putting the finishing touches on this work of body art was smaller than my thumbnail. Her handiwork sparkled with its own radiance. For a moment, I felt envious, then grateful. The craft on display demonstrated skills of which I was completely and utterly incapable. I drew in closer to get a better look at the stitching, which would likely hang for the evening before being pulled apart by a strong morning wind. Humans will survive and continue to tell our stories if we learn how to live well with our kin. The voices included in these volumes, these webs of words, and the collective wisdom they express, invite us into this kind of kenning. These are the stories of how to listen to voices other than our own. Lean a little closer into the firelight. Up on the ceiling of the cave, or near the street lamp, or between branches in the forest, or in the corner of the room within which you are currently reading, a web may be flashing in a flicker of light.
1: That was Gavin Van Horn, co-editor of Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations. Uh, Thank you, Gavin, uh, for reading and for this interview and for your work. And please uh, thank uh, John Hausdorfer and Robin Wall your co-editors.